So you heard that phrase, and we're going to come back to it all throughout the sermon this morning. So say it with me. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Ready? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. One more time. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. This is one of the peaks, if we're looking at kind of a mountain range of different events throughout these early chapters of Mark's gospel, this is one of the peaks. The apex is next week when Peter confesses Christ. That's kind of the turning point of the book. But this moment is a powerful moment for the disciples. And it's powerful because, sure, it's a miracle. Jesus comes walking to them on the water. But I think what is often overlooked is the power in what Jesus offers to his disciples and how critical their need is to hear these simple words. Say them with me again. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Mark's gospel is a gospel that we are discussing through the lens of hope. What does it mean to have hope in Jesus? What does it mean to place our hope on him? Why would that matter now to people living on the east side in 2022? Well, I don't need to tell you. It's been a tumultuous couple of years. And for every one of us, there have been things that we thought we could put our weight down on, things that we could count and rely upon that have been changed, maybe even taken away from us. There have been people that we have lost to disease. There have been jobs and livelihoods and even industries that have been decimated. There have been major upheavals around our conversation around race and racism. And now there's an ongoing war in Eastern Europe that's affecting all of us. Hope means we can figure out where to put our feet down. And there's not a lot of stuff right now that seems like we can really put our feet down on it, that it's trustworthy, that it's not going to get pulled out from under us. I remember last fall when our kids were heading back to school, I had conversations with several parents who said, boy, I sure hope this works. I sure hope they don't pull the rug out from under us again. I sure hope that my kids can stay in school. And glory to God, we have. But through this, followers of Jesus Christ have a unique opportunity to say, you know what? As great as it is that my kids are back in school, I can't put my hope there. I can't say, this is all I need to survive. If that's true, then we might be missing the point. It's really nice to have our kids back in school. Don't get me wrong. But our hope needs to be bigger. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your hope must be bigger. And the way that we're thinking about hope, this will not shock any of you who know me well, is going to come from our friend Dallas Willard. Dallas says this, Hope is the joyous anticipation of good that is not yet here or is unseen. Dallas Willard, professor of philosophy at USC for 50 years, a leading Christian thinker and theologian. These are his words to try to get our heads around what hope is. It is the anticipation of good that brings joy. When's the last time you anticipated something good and it brought you joy? If we go beyond that, if we look at the hope that Jesus is declaring to the disciples in the midst of yet another catastrophe on the water, because last week we talked about them being in the storm, now we're talking about them being in a different kind of crisis. They need something firm to put their feet down on. Literally. Like, they're in the middle of of a lake. They are in a crisis. And Jesus comes to them and says, look no further. I'm here. You need me. I'm not going to fix this problem necessarily. I'm not going to take away your struggle, but you need me to get through this. So today's outline is going to be really simple. It's not going to blow anyone's minds here. We're going to talk about the context. Where are we in the story of Mark's gospel? And then we're going to break out each of those phrases. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's talk about the context. Where are we in this story? 
We're in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark, I love this about him, he's very tight with his words. He's very terse. I had an English professor in college who used to say, why use six words when you can use three? Mark would have made an A in that professor's class. Like, he is all about a paucity of words to help further the story of Jesus. Mark's gospel, most scholars believe, was probably written the earliest, maybe A.D. 70 or so. The oral tradition, the sharing stories of Jesus, disciples telling each other when Jesus was resurrected and when Jesus died, all the verbal proclamation, that was good for the first generation or two of Christians and people in the church. But at a certain point, they said, we got to start writing this stuff down. we got to start writing this stuff down. And John Mark, Mark's full name, was the first person to kind of take on that task. And this is taking place during a tumultuous time in the world. This is in the ancient Near East. This is Israel. This is a conquered people. They are living under Roman rule, Roman oppression. There have been 400 years of silence leading up to this time. The people of Israel are waiting with bated breath for God to speak to them and renew them. And finally, they start to see some light. Things start to change. To catch us up a little bit, last week we talked about Jesus stilling the storm, bringing peace to his disciples in the midst of a crisis. After that, they go and they follow him around. He does a few miracles here and there, and then kind of the first big event, major ministry event in Mark's gospel is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection that shows up in every single gospel. It is a cornerstone moment in Jesus' ministry because after that, you can't keep crowds of people away from him. Before that, he was kind of this rabbi moving around. People kind of followed him a bit here and there, but he hadn't, as we might say, he hadn't yet gone viral. He hadn't yet had this huge emphasis, these people that would never leave him alone because they were hungry, they were hurting, they were broken. So from that moment on, from the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' ministry trajectory forever changes. And he looks around after the feeding of the 5,000. He sees all these people that have plenty of bread and fish, but they need more. They need to be cared for. They need to be healed. They need to be prayed for. They need to be brought into discipleship. He looks at all of them, and unlike many of us, myself included, he doesn't just start working on his next project. He doesn't just create a work-back plan. He doesn't just start going like, okay, I need to get you know A through M over here and N through Z over here, and let's get everybody lined up. He takes a break. The beginning of today's passage is not about Jesus' advanced planning for this stage in his ministry. No, this is Jesus doing what one author calls being before doing. Can you say that with me? Being before doing. What does that mean? He goes up on a mountainside. He looks at all the needs of people, and he says, I have a need to. I need to be with my Father. I need a break. I need to rest. Being before doing, another way to say it is, you can't give what you don't have. You can't provide over and over and over again. And this is hard for parents. This is hard for people who are leading in business and the marketplace. This is hard for teachers. You can't keep giving what you don't have. And in Jesus' situation, because he's fully God and fully human, he's tired. He's worn out. He's seeing all these faces, and instead of telling himself, okay, i got to help them, i got to keep going, i got to do this, he recognizes his limits. Even God, in human form, can recognize, I'm not going to be at my best if I go try to jump into this right now. I need a minute. I need to take a beat. And so he does. 
He sends off the disciples, not just because he sees that they need a break too, because he's probably a little tired of them too. Like, hey, you guys go, go. Just go do some trust falls. Go do some team building exercises. I'll see you when you get back. Like, here's a boat. Go to the other side of the lake. I'll see you in a minute. <sighs> okay, I need a minute. I'm going to go up on the mountain. I'm going to see my father. This is one of Mark's emphases that I love is that he talks about the humanity of Jesus in such a way where it's just, it's so clear. Jesus is God and Jesus is human. He doesn't downplay either of them. He sends the disciples off and what happens? They get stuck. Where do they get stuck? Well, this is hard to see, but I'll highlight it for us. This is the Sea of Galilee. So to the north, you're heading up uh, toward the northern part of the Holy Land. To the south, you're heading down toward kind of the Red Sea in that area. So they start up here. This is Bethsaida, right here in kind of the northern corner of the Sea of Galilee. And he sends them over here to Gennesaret. Now, what do you notice about this path that I marked here with the red line? By the way, I don't know if that's the exact path they took. It's just what worked out in Microsoft Paint, so you're welcome. What do you notice about that path? It's a pretty safe path. He's not asking them to cover hither and yon. He's asking them to go a short distance following the shoreline. And the text tells us he could see them. He could lay eyes on them from where he was, from that mountainside. I, how did he do that? I don't know. Maybe, you know, part of his divine powers, he can just see, like having binoculars. But the text tells us he could see them, and I bet you he could even hear their distress, because sound carries over water, right? So he's keeping them within striking distance. He's not letting them wander off so far that they're just going to get totally into a mess. And this is an important word for you and for I, church. Jesus will keep his eye on you. He will keep you within arm's reach. You may have been through seasons where you feel like, Jesus, I don't have any idea where you are. I feel like I'm completely adrift. I am lost. Let me tell you, he has his eye on you. He does not let people he loves he loves, wander so far that he can't find you, that he can't meet you, that he can't comfort you. He wouldn't do that. It's not the kind of God that we worship. These men that are in the boat, the text tells us that they encounter an adverse wind. I kind of had to chuckle at that sort of sparse description because I thought, you know, last summer's heat wave, would we call that like an adverse warmth? Like... An adverse wind with 12 able-bodied men in a boat, like, that's some kind of wind, right? And yet, they endure, and they're out there. And I don't think the wind was actually their biggest problem. If you've ever given a task to a group of men, and they start to experience a little bit of chaos, what typically happens? The chaos breeds on itself. It keeps growing. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. Men love to go for this tool called sarcasm to help each other try to deal with the crisis that's around them. I guarantee you, the situation on the boat was deteriorating quickly. And out of this, Jesus comes to them. And this is where we start talking about each of these sections. So say it with me again. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Come on, church. Say it with me. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus sees them struggling. And this phrase that he uses, take heart, in, in the Greek, it just simply means have courage. Have courage. But it's kind of hard to define if you just think about it that way. In our English-speaking ears, it just sounds like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get on with it, come on, like let's go, right? Getting the kids in the car, let's do this. 
We need to look at how Jesus uses this phrase in other parts of the Scriptures to understand what He means. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, take heart to the woman who found Him in the crowd and touched the hem of His garment. Remember that beautiful Sam Cooke song, The Hem of His Garment? It's one of my favorites. The woman who touched His cloak, He turns to her and He says, who touched me? And then when she, figured, when she comes to Him and says, it was me, He says, take heart, your faith has made you well. Take heart is an invitation to experience Jesus' healing, to experience His very presence. It's almost like the preface, the introduction, before the healing begins. In John chapter 16, Jesus is telling the disciples about what's going to come, about His death and His resurrection, and He says to them, take heart, I have overcome the world. Not a specific healing ministry, but an opportunity for him to say to these disciples, look, you don't know what's coming. I do, and I can tell you how it's going to go. I have overcome the world. Victory is here. Take heart. Have courage. I will create a pathway for you. In Acts chapter 23, a group of disciples are standing around, and Jesus speaks to them, take heart. You've done this ministry over here. Now I'm calling you to do this ministry over here. The, God, the book of Acts is just this story of the church unfolding and unfurling into new places. And Jesus says, take heart. This new challenge, it's coming and it's a big deal. But because I am with you, it'll be okay. Take heart is a preface to healing. It is a call to courage empowered by the gospel. And it is a calling to not get stuck in your circumstances. To not simply look at the adverse wind and say, like, that's it. I'm done. I, I can't. If we step back and we take a broader perspective, we will see that Jesus wants us to endure, to pass through what has been put in front of us. So that's the first part, take heart. Now the second part, it is I. Let's say all three together. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. What is Jesus doing here? Every one of us who's a parent has had this experience, and every one of you that grew up with parents in your household who cared for you had this experience. You're asleep. You're a kid. Or if you're a parent, you're listening for your children. And one of them is having a nightmare. They're having a dream. And you can hear them, and they're in distress. So you come into their room, and they're wrapped up in their sheets, and it's dark, but you can see their face is kind of scrunched up and tight. Maybe they got a little sweat going. And they are saying things and muttering things, and you're going, okay, I know what's happening here. They're having a nightmare. They're having a bad dream. And so what do you do? You sit down next to them on the bed, and you put your hand on them, and you say, hey, it's me. Honey, it's me. I'm here. It's okay. You're all right. I'm here. This is what Jesus is doing when he says, it is I. He is breaking through the nightmare that the disciples are in. He is literally parting the darkness, lifting them up out of their distress. Not through some methodology. He's not getting up there and saying, okay, you guys are rowers four, five, and six, and you're seven, eight, and nine, and you can just stroke together with me here. No. When you wake a child up from a nightmare, you don't have to explain the nightmare. You just sit with them. You demonstrate through your presence that they're going to be okay. That's what Jesus is doing here. And his disciples, many of whom, most of whom came from a Jewish background, they hear these words, it is I, the Greek is ego eimi. They hear that, and you know where their brains go? It goes right back to the Old Testament. To Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham hears the Lord say to him, 
I am the Lord. Very first time God says that to someone. It's Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses says, I can't do this. How could I possibly get my people into freedom? Who do I say has sent me? And God says to Moses, what? Tell them, I am has sent you. Yahweh. It is the name of God. It is a name so powerful that there are still parts of the Jewish tradition today that won't say that word because of how powerful and holy it is. And in this moment, Jesus is echoing. He is reverberating that power and that name to these disciples that are in distress. He comforts them. And He brings power to them. He lifts them out of their nightmare. Has He done this for you lately? Could you name your nightmare? Could you name maybe a person or a situation in the world that is just feels like an affliction for you? The people listening to this story, the people that are the audience in Mark's gospel, they had a name for their affliction. It was Nero, the emperor of Rome, one of the most bloodthirsty, violent emperors in the history of Rome. And there are a lot of bloodthirsty, violent emperors. The people who were hearing these stories of Jesus knew if Nero found out about them, if the Roman authorities found out about them, they would be beaten. They would be thrown in jail. They would be fed to the lions. They would have had these terrible things happen to them. And I believe in today's world, we have our versions of Nero. We have political figures that we're angry at. We have rules and regulations that we don't agree with. We have afflictions. We have diseases. We have real things. I'm not making these things up. But we have given them too much power. We have become under them because of our fears. And friends, I'm not saying don't pretend like Nero isn't there for you. I'm saying name what your Nero is before Jesus. Name your anger. Name your fear about whichever side of the aisle you may be on, whatever pathway you are finding is creating this fear for you. And just name it before Him. And say, Jesus, this is, this is what I'm facing. Would you walk me through this? Would you help me call upon your power? When you come and say, it is I, do not be afraid, and you lift me out of my nightmare, would you do that now? Just for today, would you do it now? The final part of the phrase that we need to look at today is do not be afraid. So say it with me one more time. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There's some amazing stuff out there right now about kind of the neurobiological nature of fear. Fear is actually a chemical reaction that occurs in our brains. We cannot shut it down. It's going to happen to us. We're going to face some kind of stimulus, face some kind of anxiety. This is where fight or flight comes from. We can't help it. And so Jesus is not saying in this moment, do not be human. Because to be human is to experience fear. He's saying, I'm going to give you a pathway through this. The disciples are in the boat, and unlike last week where they're fearing for their lives, what are they actually afraid of with this headwind, this resistance? I think I know what they're actually afraid of. They're afraid of looking foolish, a group of 12 men that can't row a boat across a lake, and I think they're afraid that they'll miss Jesus. Guys, he told us we need to meet him on the other side of the lake at Gennesaret. I think I can see it up there, but what if we don't get there in time? And what if he's already moved on? What if he leaves us? It's that great phrase that Peter utters later on, Lord, to whom else would we go? It's that longing and that need, and their hearts are crying for it, but they can't get through the resistance. And they won't on their own. 
So when you face fear and when you long for Jesus to say to you, do not be afraid, consider how big that fear really is. How strong is that wind? Are you giving it too much power? Are you ascribing too much to it? It's okay to be afraid. It's part of being human. But the gospel does not call us to cower in fear. And the gospel does not call us to swagger with overconfidence. Instead, it cuts right through the middle. It calls us to Jesus. I want to show a painting as we kind of make the turn and reflect here for a moment. This is from William Brassley Hole, who's a Scottish painter from the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's Jesus walking on the sea. I'd encourage you to look it up on your own, or if you're watching online, you can find it uh, via Google. And this painter, uh, he was from Scotland. He actually trained as a civil engineer. He was not an artist by trade. He got to visit the Holy Land as part of his studies, and he found these scenes so compelling that he just got back to Scotland and started painting. And he would make woodworking. He would etch things out, and he would paint over it. He was one of the first kind of painters of his era to start to do that. And what I want to point out about this painting is this. Over here on the left-hand side are the disciples in the boat. And if you see it closely, it's a scene of chaos. They're all over the place down in the boat. There's two guys climbing up here on the sails. Heaven knows what they think they're trying to fix, but they're up there trying to get the boat moving forward. And this whole left side of the painting, it's angled, it's tilted, it's focused over here on this figure who's kind of hard to see. He's, he's a little obscure. It's almost like he's sort of blurred out a little bit. And because we know the text, we know who the figure is, but that whole left side is like swooping in on, focused on the figure coming toward them on the water. And they're terrified because fear is being human. But once they hear that voice, maybe, maybe this helps. They hear from way far away, take heart. They hear that first part, and it's off in the distance, and they can't see him that well. He's kind of, the, the wind's moving things around. It's still chaos. And then he gets a little bit closer, and they can start to make out his silhouette, and they go, wait, is that Jesus? And he says, it is I. And then he gets a little bit closer, and he puts his hand on the railing of the boat, the outer edge of the hull. And they can hear him, and they can see him. And he says, do not be afraid. And then he steps into the boat. The text tells us he physically gets into the boat. Have you ever tried to get into a boat from the water? It's really awkward. It's very hard to do. And somehow Jesus does it. And somehow he lands. Maybe he's got a little bit of water on the bottom of his cloak. He lands in their chaos. Do not be afraid. I'm here. And imagine the relief that they felt. Imagine the disciples going from their fear and frustration and yelling at each other and sarcasm and calling each other all kinds of names, and here's Jesus rescuing them yet again. They were amazed. So I'll leave this painting up here because I want us to reflect for just a moment. And if it helps you just to kind of have this as a visual, I would encourage you to just look at the painting. When we think about the, dis the disciples' journey, Jesus kept them close to shore. When has he kept you close to shore? When has he held you close, kept you in eyesight, kept you in earshot? 
When did you think that he was very, very far away and it turned out he was actually quite near? I think this happens in places where we don't know what to do, but we know that God is with us. When my children were born, I felt this sense of Jesus is very near to me right now. I'm in a new place. I do not know what I'm doing, but he is near to me. When I've gone through seasons of acute grief and loss, people in my family, these early days, the earliest days of COVID, I remember feeling this sense of Jesus is not far. This is scary. This is uncharted. I don't know what's happening, but he is not far. When has it felt to you like, like he's close by? He can see me. He sees what's happening here. Second question to ponder is, what is your adverse wind? What is the resistance that you are feeling? What is blowing against you and kind of swamping your efforts? I would say one of the greatest challenges I face, and I think this is a problem many of us face on the east side, is hurry, speed, efficiency, going as quickly as we can from one thing to another to another. Years ago, I was supposed to lead a discussion of a book on leadership. And I had a group of people that were meeting with me. We were meeting for coffee, and I drove down there, and I had the book next to me in the seat. And I pulled up, and I walked in, and I ordered a coffee, and I sat down. And only then did I realize that I had not read the book. And I was supposed to be leading the discussion. I was so embarrassed. And ever since then, I've always tried to think like, man, I had no idea that I didn't read the book. I literally, it took me sitting down to realize I've been in such a hurry, I've been going, 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 that I have let these people down. I have misused this time. We all have moments like that, but that was a conviction for me around hurry. Hurry is my headwind. Hurry is what will push me off course. What is it for you? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's sloth, just being really lazy. Maybe it's an obsession you have with a screen, a game, a TV series. Like, it could be anything. What is your headwind? What is pushing against you? And finally, where do you most need Jesus to walk up and put his hand on the edge of the boat or put his hand on your shoulder and just say, I'm with you. It is I. Where do you most need that right now? If your marriage is in trouble, if you ask him, he will lay his hand on you. If you have a spouse who's sick, if you're afraid of losing someone you love to a disease, would you ask him simply, Jesus, just put your hand on me. Put your hand on my mom. Put your hand on my dad. Where do you most need him to step into that boat with you and say, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Please join me in prayer. Father, for this time and for the people in this room, we give you thanks. And we ask that you would use these words from your scriptures to change us. For the way that you ministered your disciples, thank you. Would you minister to us now through uh, this brief time of discussion? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.